Hello and welcome to Deloitte New Zealand's State of the State podcast series. I'm Dave Lovett, Deloitte's Public Sector Lead uh, based in Wellington. In this short podcast series, we will be looking at our 2018 State of the State Thought Leadership articles, exploring the topic of well-being in New Zealand. Each episode will feature our report authors and guests from across the public sector discussing why well-being is a hot topic right now, why it's important, and how we foster it from a number of angles for the benefit of all Kiwis. In this episode, I'm joined by Deloitte Director Jane Fraser-Jones and Professor Girol Karajolu, Head of Victoria University of Wellington's School of Government. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to be talking about the first three articles from State of the State, which provide a broad introduction to well-being. What is it? Why should we care? How we measure it? and how far we've come in the last few years in building it. You can find these articles at deloitte.com slash New Zealand slash State of the State. So I'd like to start with you, Girl. Why is well-being such a hot topic right now? And why is government talking about a well-being budget next year? If we define well-being as um, the ability of people to live the lives they value, a lot of research is now showing that uh, that is not only dependent on your material uh, well-being, as it were, conditions, but also other features, uh, non-material conditions, environment, social interactions with other people, and the realization that some of that can be bought with income and some cannot be. So I'm delighted to see that the conversation in New Zealand and around the world has been expanded from pursuing material well-being to wider well-being, taking into account all those other dimensions. And the realization that uh, it is a matter for public policy because some of these, such as resilience to systemic risks, environmental concerns, social cohesion, are not under the control of individuals. And Girol, is this something that we're seeing emerging in other countries as well? Is this a worldwide trend or is it specific to New Zealand? This is definitely a worldwide trend. Uh, it has been going on at least since the Sarkozy report that was written by Sen, uh, Fitushi and Stiglitz uh, in 2009. And since then, uh, there have been many, many attempts to measure well-being in various ways. What is new and where New Zealand is probably one of the leading countries is a serious exploration of how we can bring that to formulating, designing, implementing and uh, evaluating public policy. And Jane? In recent years, New Zealand has focused on social investment as, a, as an approach, particularly around welfare. How is social investment evolving into this investing for well-being approach? Yeah, I mean, with um, social investment, we probably saw that coalesce out of a, out of, um, a number of different um, I suppose social policy stances from the previous government. There was um, better public services targets, which started off a number of years ago, which sort of helped the public sector um, focus on some outcomes and measuring those with rigour. Um, then there were um, the 
welfare valuations that actually um, look at the causes and correlations between aspects within the welfare system and things that contributed um, to people's dependency on wealth or the way they left the welfare system. In time, it also enveloped other probably more holistic approaches to social well-being, including the Fanawara approach. Um, I think in terms of social investment, you know, it was about, broadly speaking, what was good for the community was good for the government's book. And that aspect of what's good for the community probably speaks to what Beryl talked about before in terms of helping people to live the lives they value. So social investment, I think, um, was already on the road to being the investing for well-being um, approach. It's probably more about the difference between perhaps the emphases or the lenses different governments place over um, social investment. So perhaps there was more of an, of an um, emphasis on fiscal liability under the previous government. That's not to say that the well-being of people was not front and, um, front and centre. I think the previous Prime Minister was very clear um, about the well-being of New Zealanders. But I think this government, this current government, has placed a stronger emphasis on the, the more, more holistic aspects of well-being, particularly around um, the strong adoption of the Living Standards Framework with its four capitals of natural, um, social, human and physical or financial um, capital. If I can build on what Jane has just said, in fact, uh, the spirit of the broader investment approach, which started under the old government, was what kind of capitals of the four that Jane highlighted we should be investing in, when and how, in order to expand, as I call it, the well-being frontier. Uh, and so that's the heart of the investment approach. At the beginning, it started uh, with a, too much focus maybe on the fiscal implications of it, but now the Treasury and others are being encouraged to do cost-benefit analysis using the currency of well-being as the cost versus the benefit. Just to give one example of the interdependencies between these in thinking about investment, um, if you invest in making people healthier, uh, they become well in its own right, but they also are more productive. If they are more productive, we have more uh, production consumption of material goods and services. If we do nothing else, you create pollution. So the investment approach is all about thinking about the interdependencies. So while you're investing in making people healthier, you're also saying, what can we do to shift both production and consumption towards cleaner goods and services? That's the sort of thinking that is emerging, which is extremely encouraging. So it sounds like the well-being approach has evolved from social investment, but still involves quite a few changes which are going to affect government and citizens and, and communities. Maybe, Girl, if, if you're able to talk a bit about how can we measure well-being and how will we know whether this change in approach is actually working? The first point uh, one has to make, uh, because there's quite a uh, pushback, as it were, on this direction towards expanding the focus on, of policy towards wider well-being. And we just really want to emphasize that a focus on well-being is not a focus against material conditions. That's very important. 
what we're saying is simply uh, increasing material conditions, uh, China being an example with pollution, Korea being an example, South Korea with work-life balance, is creating problems in other spheres of well-being. That's one point. In terms of measuring well-being, there are various types of measure. The simplest one is subjective well-being, where it is primarily survey-based. You ask people how they are feeling on a scale of 0 to 10 and so on and so forth, so it's survey-based. But there are also more objective ways of measuring well-being. The OECD have their 11 domains of well-being, which includes material and non-material. The point I want to make is that there is also something we are not focusing on. How do we measure the quality of a well-being-focused public policy? And the proposal I have is that in order to assess whether public policy is serving intergenerational well-being, we need to measure whether the resilience of the whole country, systemic resilience, sustainability, equity and such like are improving. And I think that's the next phase in this uh, whole evolution of how we measure and manage well-being. So Jane, if, if these shifts, if these outcomes that Gural is talking about um, are to happen, are there other changes that are required in the way the government works or the things that it does in order to enable that, that shift? I think there are probably some lessons to be learned from how social investment was implemented um, from the from ministerial direction down into the public sector and then um, throughout the public sector as well. Looking back, I think some people believe that actually, um, with all due respect, Gerald, wearing your old treasury hat, some people felt that if social investment had been owned and led by a social agency right from the get-go, there may have, may have been some different um, this may have evolved a bit differently. Um, perhaps having it in Treasury right from the start um, had that very heavy fiscal emphasis. Um, probably another aspect that I think people have, have talked a bit about is um, it's a great idea to talk about a well-being budget. And it certainly it's got its sceptics and it's got its champions. And I think there's a widely acknowledged view that it's not going to be perfect first time. And the idea of um, placing values on the different capitals and the idea of making trade-offs between those capitals is going to be difficult um, and will be probably quite trying for members of the public and for policymakers alike. But from a sort of, I suppose, pragmatic policy development um, sort of place, there's a view that actually is having just a well-being budget the right thing to do. If it's really going to be baked into how policy makers and legislators um, use well-being to develop policy, then it should be baked into um, everyday public policy management tools. For example, cabinet papers, business cases, for example, um, rather than being seen as something that sits purely in the fiscal domain in the, in the usual annual budget planning life cycle. One point I want to pick up um, in terms of how the government needs to work, because well-being uh, is um, related to environmental, social, economic factors, uh, and they are all interdependent, 
it is very critical that government agencies in playing their stewardship role is distinct from serving the current ministers through their agencies uh, need to work collaboratively uh, for in a systemic way. This is very easy to say. It is the challenge of the New Zealand public sector over the next 20 years, I would say. There is no doubt in my mind about that. So that's breaking the silos and making the system work at the centre. But there's a complementary side in terms of community involvement. It is a highly centre-focused uh, country we have in terms of governance and management. Everything we are finding out is we dig deeper into well-being uh, literature in terms of design implementation evaluation is begging for communities being involved in all phases of it. Uh, so the collaboration between communities and the centre uh, in designing, implementing, evaluating, trying various things is another huge change that is required. These are the challenges over the next 10-20 years if we really want to make well-being uh, work. I just wanted to pick up on one of those points you said, Girol. I think, you know, when we did our 2016 State of the State looking at social investment, we identified a number of challenges and opportunities and um, one of those big challenges was the siloed approach of our public sector and the, the very difficulty in, in collaborating. Now, two years on, it hasn't really changed. I mean, we wouldn't expect it to change in two years because it would have been a function of our public sector for some decades now. Um, there's certainly a view that, you know, collaboration will only happen if it has um, the will and the impetus and a bit of elbow grease from people. Um, we can change the structures as much as we want to, but unless people are willing to put their shoulders to the wheel, collaboration, this isn't going to happen. And how we change that culture is going to be difficult. And as you say, it's a challenge over the next 10 or 20 years because it will be probably an incremental and gradual approach, I would think. I want to add to that by saying that um, because I have been brainwashed by economics, uh, culture is a lovely word. Uh, what also matters is incentives. What will make a government bureaucrat come on Monday and do something different that they were doing on Friday? And the issue is what are the levers you can pull? And having been brainwashed by economics and finance, my lever would be the budget and related matters. In other words, you need to say, here are the outcomes I want and you will only get it if you deliver these outcomes for society. And then let the organization of that be at the community and other levels. So that could be one way. It's not the only way, but we need to think about culture as well as incentives. Yeah. And I think going to the incentives as well, it's again linked to that as the risk appetite. Because again, incentives can be held out there and you're absolutely right, that will help induce people to work towards particular outcomes. But if the parameters for the way they can get to those outcomes remain rigid and there's no leeway for, for fast failure or for scaling up or for um, trying things a bit different, then those outcome, those incentives are going to probably be not as strong as they could otherwise be. And certainly I think the 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 Appetite for risk is not, um, it's not flat, it's not a plateau, there's, there's sort of um, greater risk appetite for certain projects or for certain bits of money that you're spending, so it's much easier to be risky with internal money rather than new money, 
Um, and I think also risk tends to um, either expand, become maybe more laissez-faire or more restrictive depending on externalities happening in the environment, depending on you know what's happened with um, a particular evaluation of a policy or something scandalous that's happened. You know, so it's it's never a continuous trajectory in terms of that risk appetite. It's quite difficult, probably, to opt and difficult an environment to operate in. There's a political dimension to this. If you're going to genuinely progress well-being by involving communities, which requires different things being tried, tested, just like the private sector does all the time. We imagine things, we design things, we trial them, it fails and you go on. Uh, we need to be able, as a political system, to be able to do that. Can you imagine a minister facing the country and saying, you know, I really worry about poverty. I have no idea what to do about it. I will simply try a few things and see whether they work or not. I suspect in today's New Zealand they will lose the next election. But we need to get to the point where that is perfectly okay. That we should try different things, uh, enable communities to do different things, invest in communities to be able to do different things, and be prepared to say some of them will fail, some of them will succeed, some of them may be scalable, some of them will be very specific to a community, and just change the way we design, implement, evaluate public policy. I think this is a very important, and that will take many years. So what I'm hearing is that uh, if this well-being approach is successful, it won't just be an abstract thing that happens in the world of government and politics. It won't just be that we have a well-being budget, but there will be some real changes that individuals, communities, and even businesses see happening in their world. Because if we don't see that, if there aren't shifts in resources or changes to the programs and services that government offers, we won't actually have real change on the ground and well-being will not be enhanced even with the change in the policy and approach. Is that, is that right? Yeah, and I think we shouldn't, um, there shouldn't be any underestimation of, the, of, of businesses and private individuals' ability to grasp this. It's, I don't think it's simply a public sector idea that will be foisted upon um, businesses. I think a lot of industries already think about the value they create, not just in terms of dollars, but in terms of what they provide, you know, to their communities, to their, you know, it's it's more than, um, than, than jobs and dollars. It's also about the fabric of a community, the life, the lives that they create for their people. I think a lot of businesses provide a massive amount of pastoral care, for example, and I don't think that talking about the value of business or industry in terms other than economic is going to be strange for people. In fact, I think that's how they already often do think about the value of their businesses. If it's been drawn out more sharply than perhaps has been before. I have some small evidence to support what Jane has just said. In preparing for the uh, Sustainable Development Goals Summit, as we call the 2018, uh, we had various sectors represented, and one of them was the business sector. The representative, having consulted with businesses around the country, came back. And uh, she said uh, the three main items that business are very keen to focus on, if you want to prioritize, is poverty, 
the environment and then economy. So business is very much involved with this. I think business is understanding it. I think we are misinterpreting business and community. Yeah. The politicians are behind, I think, not business. Yeah, and it's interesting to see the recent announcement from, I think it was 60 businesses signing up in terms of uh, climate change initiatives, uh, the kind of commentary that's coming out of business in terms of uh, the need to focus on the human capital, which is of course one of the four capitals. So that, that messaging is encouraging. But how do you see things changing in, in practice? Do you see that resources are going to shift between the four capitals as a result of a greater focus on well-being? Or is not much going to change in terms of the, the balance between physical, financial capital, human, social, and natural capital? In terms of public policy, to be fair, there was always, when I was at the Treasury, for example, when we prepared our briefings to the incoming government, there was always focus on social capital-related matters, investments, if you look at the investment proposals, uh, economic capital infrastructure and uh, fiber optics and all these sorts of things, and natural environmental kind of capital. So that already, uh, there was never a presumption that there's only one thing you invest in. There was always going to be a, a range of investments. I think what this new framework uh, is helping us uh, observe is in terms of prioritizing the investments, taking into account the interdependencies of these things. And I'm repeating myself, but the main challenge really is on implementation. It's not the lack of will. Everybody wants to reduce poverty. Everybody wants to invest in uh, making sure that we have a clean environment. The, the agonizing is about why isn't it happening despite the fact that we are spending so much money on it. And I think the well-being framework encourages us to think of these in an interdependent way. And in the implementation, I'm repeating myself, in involving communities and others at all phases of policy design making, which in New Zealand requires a deliberate investment in building capability in communities. Because when I was at the Treasury and we talked about these things, people used to say, yes, but communities do not have the capability. And I used to say, did your child get out of the womb and start w w walking immediately? I have a 34-year-old who is still, I'm looking after, trying to get to walk. So, of course, you're going to invest in communities if you want to get, have them the capability to do the things. Yeah, that's very important. I think, too, understanding how to make choices. I mean, everyone, governments, communities, people make choices every day but how to make those choices using the Living Standards Framework as, as, a, you know, as, a, as a guiding tool can be, I think, can throw up a lot of challenges for people. When we think about poverty, as you've talked about, Beryl, and then we think about something like you know, land use. Well, we, we need land for housing, affordable housing, but we also need productive land in order to feed people. Um, if we have less productive land and the cost of fruit and vegetables and dairy products go up, does that then become out of reach of people who are in poverty or unable to access healthy foods? You know, so it can be, I suppose, quite, those choices, nothing, nothing's an absolute good or an absolute bad, is it? It's about getting that balance right. And I think managing that tension is 
is the hard thing to do. And I don't think the living stand, I don't think the living stand is framed as a panacea for making that easier. It will just perhaps um, make actually categorising those choices and values more stark than what it might otherwise have been. But the point is uh, very well uh, taken. There is no point. Of, uh, absolutely. Economics and life is all about trade-offs, opportunity, cost and so on. There is no doubt about that. But I think on the positive side, without in any way, uh, that's not a substitute, is a complement. I think what the broader well-being framework is encouraging us to do is also to focus on the complementarities. Uh, between. In other words, what can I invest in that would have the biggest bang for the buck? And uh, among the most exciting research happening, both on the sustainable development goals, which are uh, 17 of them, as well as the domains of well-being that OECD and others and Treasury are working on, is a lot of focus on what would be the kind of investment we can make that had the greatest benefit for all those things. And that is becoming a very exciting way of prioritizing investment. And I think that's where research uh, is going to add a lot of value. So, so it sounds like the future is more than just consulting with the community. It's about engaging them in decisions and trade-offs that need to be made to get that biggest effect for the uh, investments and for the decisions that government has to make, um, which is going to be a, a big change moving forwards and uh, a, a real challenge for, for government and communities together to do effectively. I think that's pretty much all we've got time for in this episode. Thanks again to Jane Fraser-Jones and Girol Karajolu for your time today. I do encourage you to check out the series on our Deloitte.co.nz website and share your thoughts on what we discussed today and on well-being more generally with us on Twitter at DeloitteNZ or LinkedIn. Don't forget the hashtag StateOfTheStateNZ. Over the course of this podcast series, we'll be looking at well-being through a range of lenses, with the next episode looking at how we can help at-risk families build their reliance and well-being through a family-by-family -family approach. Thanks for listening.